Hello, this is Daniel from the Particular Baptist Podcast. In today's episode, I give part two of my Sunday School series on the Doctrine of Justification. This was recorded and streamed live at Covenant Reformed Baptist Church in Warrington, Virginia. I hope you're edified by the teaching today. morning. Hi, Nancy. Let's go ahead and get started this morning on our lesson. If you need a handout with the questions, they're in the back on the table, right here by the door. Let's give everyone a second to sit down. Let's open it with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time we can spend in your word, and particularly discussing uh, the gospel and the core truths of our faith with justification. We ask and pray that you would bless our discussion today, that you would be glorified in it, and that we would grow in our understanding of you and your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we looked at the crux of uh, the, Paul's argument for the gospel in the book of Romans. So we saw that what the gospel means for us and what it means um, for the world as the gospel goes out. We saw that faith is the means by which faith comes to us, or faith is the means by which the righteousness of God comes to us, I should say, and that it's accredited to us and we are treated as righteous in the sight of God. So Romans is not the only place, obviously, that justification is discussed. We see this in uh, throughout the New Testament, and Paul is consistent in his application of it. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, uh, we see this doctrine laid out as well. It says, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So these tenets of salvation are laid out here in 1 Corinthians 1.30. But lest we think that the imputed righteousness of Christ is not being discussed here, um, you can see these other items, sanctification and redemption, are coupled here with righteousness. And this is in the context of being in Jesus Christ. And what that means to be in Christ is to be unified with him as our federal head. He represents his people before God, um, just as we were in Adam before we were in Christ. Adam represented us before God as our federal head under the covenant of works. So in Adam, all die, and we receive those benefits from Adam's sin. Um, and then in Christ, we're made alive, right, as Romans 5 says. So this uh, language of being in Christ and being unified with him in covenant um, is what is being talked about here. So these items, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, are benefits that we receive when we are unified in Christ by faith. And that righteousness is what Paul discussed in the book of Romans, that righteousness of God that's revealed through faith. And that becomes ours. So sanctification and redemption and righteousness in Christ become ours by faith. And the context here that Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 1 is the gospel. If you look at verses 18 through 25, he's continuing this line of thinking, and he does so all the way to verse 30 on the gospel. 
Dr. Gregory K. Beale in Table Talk Magazine talks about this passage, and he says, quote, We are considered to have the same perfect wisdom, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption that Christ possesses. Now, this does not mean that we possess these attributes in our personal existence on earth. Instead, we are represented by Christ as becoming the, these things because of our unity with him. That is, we are in Christ. The phrase to us refers to our location in Christ Jesus and our sharing in his attributes. So we are recognized as having these things because of what Christ did for us. So that that's very important to remember this language of in Christ, in Christ. This is how we receive those benefits, including the righteousness of Christ through faith. So if you turn over to Philippians three, we see another place where justification by faith is discussed. Philippians chapter three, beginning in verse seven. But what things were gain to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now we see here another clear passage where justification by faith is confessed. Paul is using the same argumentation that he did in Romans. He's laying aside any hope that he has in himself in representing himself before God and making him righteous. And he's trusting in Christ by faith. He counts all of those things as rubbish. And if Paul, if out of anybody, should be able to claim um, righteousness before God. I mean, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? He kept the law um, very well. He was above his peers and his knowledge of the law and its application. So if anyone, Paul should be righteous before God, right, in his keeping of the law. But he counts all of those things that he did, even while um, studying the law of God and teaching it, counts them all as rubbish, and that we must look to Christ and Christ alone for our hope and our salvation. That's where our righteousness and our true standing before God comes from. So these are some other areas where this doctrine is laid out, and we'll talk about um, some others later. But if you have your question sheet, we're going to dive into some of the questions. I'm not going to go through all of them because we've touched upon quite a bit of them last week when we discussed justification um, in, its, uh, in what the doctrine was. But let's look at um, question two. What is the practical problem which must be appreciated if the biblical doctrine of justification is to be approached properly? Why is justification needed at all? God's holy, we're not. Yeah, that's right. Because God's holy, we're not. Yeah, we've broken God's law, right? We are. Yeah. Yep. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Our sin is the problem, right? That's why we need justification. As we discussed last week in Romans 3, we cannot keep God's law perfectly, right? We have fallen short. Even the good works that we do that might appear good, relatively speaking, are not really good according to God's law and um, in terms of how he sees us. They're not done with the right motive, as our confession says. They might be good to our fellow man. They might outwardly conform to the law of God, but they really do not um, conform to God's law. And so God must punish us, right? If, if God is just and we've broken his law and his law demands death, physical and spiritual death, then 
um, God must punish us. And that's why we need justification, because we need to be made right before God, forensically speaking, from a judicial point of view. We need to be made right before God. Those things that God's law requires and demands must be met. Otherwise, God is not just. God cannot wink at sin. He cannot um, use shortcuts to get people into heaven. He must satisfy his law in order to be just. This is who he is in his nature. God cannot deny himself. So questions four and five. Explain the difference between the active and passive obedience of Christ. And I, I mesh these together because they're, um, they're basically the same topic. But why is the distinction between the two important? Does the distinction between the active and passive obedience of Christ mean that there are two separate parts of Christ's work? And what's the biblical basis for this? He lived a perfect and righteous life. Mm -hmm. Passive obedience was his dying on the cross for us, as God sent him to do. Yep. Yep. The act of obedience of Christ is his obedience to the law, actively speaking, those commands, those um, imperatives that were given in the law. Jesus kept them perfectly. Our confession, if you turn to uh, paragraph one of chapter 11, um, near the second half of the, the paragraph, it says, but by imputing Christ's active obedience under the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and sole righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. So there is a distinction. They both accomplish the same thing. They both accomplish the satisfaction of God's law, but they're different in terms of how they are uh, played out. So where do we see this biblically? Matthew 5, 17, Jesus talks about his act of obedience. They do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus was coming to fulfill the law that we had broken. And there had to be a man that did this, right? God couldn't just say, well, you're righteous. I'm just going to count you as righteous. No, his law had to be fulfilled. It had to be done by a man because men uh, transgressed it. So God's law had to be fulfilled by Christ. And Jesus was the only one who could do this. Jesus was the only perfect man that ever lived. There was no sin in him. He knew no sin. And so he was the only one qualified to fulfill the law on our behalf. And since the scriptures teach that there is righteousness that comes to us by faith, and that is the righteousness of God that could only be attained by keeping the law as a man, that could only be done in Christ. So Christ is our righteousness. He's the one who fulfilled the law actively on our behalf. Now, with regards to his passive obedience, as Nancy said, that is his death. It's the recipient. When you're passive, you're a recipient of action, right? He received the wrath of God poured out upon him. He was punished for our sins as if he did them himself. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, um, where Jesus was counted as sinful in the same way that we're counted as righteous. He's, it says, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is what's called the great exchange. We give Christ our sin. He gives us his righteousness. So it lays out this concept of the great exchange. So what does that mean that Christ became sin for us? It means that 
Jesus Christ was counted as sinful. He took on our sin. He was accredited as having done the sin that we did. That doesn't mean he became sinful. It says in the same verse, it says that he knew no sin, but he was accredited as having done those things that we had done. So when God punished him, it was a just punishment. He was punished as if he had done those things on our behalf, and God could be the just and the justifier of those who put their faith in Jesus. So they were imputed to him as if he had done it. And then we receive the righteousness of Christ in that exchange as well. And the same language Paul is using here that he used in 1 Corinthians 1. We become the righteousness of God in him, right? It's this unification in Christ. We are in union with him. And Christ as our federal head under the new covenant gives us those benefits. He's the mediator of the new covenant through his death, and we receive the benefits of being in Christ by faith. And part of that is becoming the righteousness of God. We are counted as righteous before him. Yes? Before we get too far past the act of obedience of Christ, a really helpful little summary, I think it was Sproul that said it, is Christ not only died for our sin, he lived for our righteousness. Mm. Yeah, Sproul would also say, you know, we are, we are saved by works, but by the works of another. Yep, 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 yep. Charles Hodge, who is a great Presbyterian and faculty member of Princeton Theological Seminary, said this about 2 Corinthians 5.21. He said, quote, Christ bearing our sins did not make him morally a sinner any more than the victim was morally defiled, which bore the sins of the people. Nor does Christ's righteousness become subjectively ours. It is not the moral quality of our souls. This is what is not meant. What is meant is equally plain. Our sins were the judicial ground of the sufferings of Christ so that they were a satisfaction of justice. And his righteousness is the judicial ground of our acceptance before God so that our pardon is an act of justice. It is a justification or declaration that justice is satisfied. It is not mere pardon, but justification alone that gives us peace with God. God must be just. He cannot wink at sin. He cannot make shortcuts for sin. His law must be met. This is really the glorious, I think one of the glorious things of the gospel is God did not um, deny his own nature. He did not cut corners. He maintained his holiness while bringing us to salvation. <clears throat> Unlike, um, you know, a one Stephen Furtick who said that God broke the law for love. You know, that's heresy. Stay away from it. Yep. God did not break his law so that we could be with him. He fulf uh, Christ fulfilled the law, and he died to satisfy the punishment that the law required. So we have full satisfaction in Christ, and by faith we receive those benefits. So God maintains his integrity while uh, bringing us into communion with him. Question eight. Give several arguments to refute the doctrine of eternal justification in the view that the elect have been justified from all eternity. This was an interesting one to study. I'd, I don't think I'd ever heard of this before. Um, and I guess what's kind of frustrating about Waldron's book is he doesn't talk about it at all. He just asks the question. So I um, had to do some digging. Um, but this is addressed in paragraph four of chapter 11. Um, it's meant to refute this idea of eternal justification. That means we were justified from all eternity. There wasn't a time where we were not justified. 
That's what this teaching, and it's a hyper-Calvinist teaching. It comes, it, it's uh, a heretical teaching. It comes from a hyper-Calvinist point of view. Um, but the writers of our confession wanted to be very clear that there was a time where we weren't justified and then a time where we were. Um, John Flavel, who is um, one of the Puritans, talks about this. He lays out six um, errors that this doctrine teaches. Number one, the elect were justified in eternity or at the time of Christ's death. Number two, in justification, the elect are persuaded of Christ's love for them. Number three, we ought no more to question our faith than to question Christ. Number four, believers should not confess sin or pray for its forgiveness because all their sins being pardoned from eternity, they are no longer sins. Number five, God sees no sin in believers, whatever sins they may commit. And number six, to say that God is angry with the elect is a reflection on his justice. So these are the errors that this teaching um, posits. So if you look at paragraph four of chapter 11 of our confession, it says, God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect, and Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified personally until the Holy Spirit doth in time actually apply Christ to them. So our confession makes very clear there is a condition upon which um, we are saved, right? The Holy Spirit must apply those things to our hearts. There is a time where that must happen. We were not eternally justified. And I want to look at the scripture verses that are actually used as proof texts for this um, by the writers of our confession. Galatians 3.8. This talks about God's foreknowledge and decree of, um, of our salvation. Galatians 3.8. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham before him, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So here's God declaring what is going to happen in the future. 1 Peter 1.2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace in you, to you and peace be multiplied. So another verse talking about God decreeing um, from eternity our salvation. But then the writers of our confession use proof texts that talk about time as it relates to our redemption, Christ's death, and our salvation. 1 Timothy 2.6, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So Jesus Christ was going to die at a specific time ordained by God, right? That had to happen in order for us to be saved. Those benefits had to take place. And we see this too, where uh, even when Jesus in his earthly ministry, he would hide himself from crowds. Why? Because his time had not yet come. His time had not yet come, so he would hide himself. He would reveal himself at the correct times according to his father's plan. Romans 4.25, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. There was a specific time in history when he was delivered up and he was raised again. Colossians 1.21 through 22, this talks about our state before and after we were saved. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So there was a time where we weren't justified, right? There was a time where we were walking as enemies of God. A justified person is not an enemy of God, right? So this, this is really a nonsensical... It, 
I don't personally, I don't know where it came from or why it was um, taught the way it was, but the scriptures are explicitly clear that there was a time where we were hostile to God and we, and then there was a time where we were saved. Titus three, four through seven. But when the kindness and love of God, our savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Christ Jesus, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So it wasn't until Christ appeared, right, that we were saved and that, that righteousness was given to us through faith and faith alone. There was a time in history where that happened. So this is, honestly, it's a very easy um, false doctrine to refute because there's multiple scriptures that talk about our time before Christ, our time after um, being saved. You know, we can see the problems that, that this um, creates. Question nine. Are there any questions or comments before we move on? Yeah, Sean. Sure. Mm. Because essentially, you're not even saying that faith is necessary to be saved. You're just, basically you're saved just by being, just by existing, in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. What's the point of teaching repentance and faith, right? Yeah, it is. It's very dear. Yeah, Ben. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's an unbalanced view. It's taking other scriptures too far and neglecting. I mean, we have the clear command by Christ in um, at the end of the book of Matthew to teach the gospel to all nations, right? Are you just going to neglect that because you think that everyone's going to be saved? Who cares? Yeah, so now you're falling into disobedience. Um, so there's there's all these issues that can come up with this. Yes, Pastor. Yeah, it, 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 it just becomes devastating. Yeah. No, like not free offer the gospel starts destroying that. Affecting missions, denying means. Yep. God uses means to accomplish purpose, secondary causes. Yep. It's just devastating. Yeah. And why not apply that to to existence in general? Why only apply that to salvation? I mean, if God has decreed all things to come to pass, then what's the point of uh, recognizing anything happening in time at all? So I think it creates a problem. We despise hyper-Calvinism as much as we despise our Yes. <laughs> yeah, they're both extremes. They're both extremes. Yes, Nancy. I think in reading in, in the confession of faith, 
but one little word that it's easy not to see is the word decree. From all eternity, he has determined that he were just that all the elect were justified. Mm -hmm. He didn't say that they would be justified, but he decreed that they would be in due time. Yes. That's when the Holy Spirit Yep, there's a distinction that has to be made from God's nature and our, uh, you know, our being us being bound to time. God is eternal. He is not bound to time. He just is. And so from God's perspective, it may look like we are justified because he doesn't see things in time like we do. He's not moving a long time. Um, but we are actually in time. We are not eternal beings. We don't just exist. We change with time moment by moment. And so um, these things had to take place according to the timeline that God had decreed from all eternity. We have to make that distinction. Um, otherwise, we fall into the errors that we um, are discussing here. But very important. Question nine. Describe the problem addressed and the solution suggested in paragraph five. And what is the biblical support for the solution? So let's look at paragraph five of chapter 11. God doth continue to forgive the sins of those who are justified, and although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may by their sins fall under God's fatherly displeasure, and in that condition they have not usually the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith in repentance. So I think the problem here is that Christians still sin even in a justified state. Justification doesn't eradicate your sin nature. Our justification is our legal standing before God's tribunal. It does not change us morally speaking. We're not infused with righteousness as the Catholic Church would have us to believe. We don't. Christ's righteousness is not given to us subjectively. We don't become righteous in that sense. So it's a process. Yes, it's a process. That's right. Yep. Is is it, it could we tie justification as a process like sanctification? Do they kind of go together? Um, it would start the sanctification process for sure, yeah. And justification in terms of our moral standing before God would be a one-time act for sure. Yes. But it's a process in terms of our subjective righteousness. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Starts when we're born again, and then it's a lifetime of of uh, refining. So that's the problem that's laid out here um, in this paragraph. We still sin. And I think a perfect example of this is it's a well-known example, 2 Samuel 11 with David, right? David and Bathsheba. David was at war with the people of Ammon, and he decided he was going to stay home instead of doing his kingly duties and, and fighting a war. And he got lazy, and this led to the sin of adultery and the sin of murder. Um. I mean, we see this in verse 27 of chapter 11. It says, and when her mourning was over, this was after her husband was murdered, Uriah. David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And this is consistent with what we see here in paragraph five. Christians can fall into egregious sin, right? And they will bring um, God's displeasure upon them. Just because you are justified does not mean that um, God does not get angry with his people. He does not um, become displeased with them as the eternal justification view would have us believe. No, he does become displeased if, if his people fall into sin, as we see here with David. And David was a man after God's own heart. He was extremely, he was a righteous man who walked closely with God, yet he fell into great 
sin, violated God's law on a, on a major level. And these sins did bring um, reproach upon the name of God. It brought a punishment to his household. We see this in chapter 12, verses 11 through 14. Nathan, the prophet, is confronting David about his sin. It says, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And David and Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. So even as a Christian, we don't necessarily escape the consequences of our sin, right? Sin still sometimes has to be dealt with, certainly not in an eternal aspect. You know, we're even if you sin as a justified individual, you still will see God because we have that moral standing before God. But as we struggle with besetting sins, as we if we pursue certain sins, God will show his displeasure and he's not going to leave his people there either. He will discipline his people if you truly are a child of God. Hebrews 12, 6 says, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and he scourges every son who he, who, whom he receives. So if you are a true Christian, you will be disciplined. So if you don't see discipline, if you continue on in your sin and there's no stopping, that's a, probably a good indication you don't know God because there will be discipline um, if you are a child of God. God will not leave you there. He will not leave you to continue on in your habitual sin. And this can come in different ways. It could be through the preaching of the word. It could be through a brother coming and pointing out um, your sin and rebuking you. It could be through church discipline. You know, these are different ways that God could bring discipline to his people. Um, but God, you know, when he removes that countenance of his pleasure upon us, that can also lead, I think, Christians to despair and doubt. And that might even be a form of discipline as well. This closeness with God is no longer there. So one way that we can continue our joy in Christ and have assurance that we are in Christ by obeying him. You know, if we love God, Jesus said, if you love me in John 14, keep my commandments, right? Love for God will result in obedience. So if we are lacking assurance or we feel that this, the light of God's countenance is not on us, and we feel like we're not walking closely with the Lord, Look at let's look at our lives. Are we living in sin? Is there a sin we're not repenting of that we're holding on to? Because this can hinder our assurance and, and our, certainly will hinder our walk with God. So there's no sinless perfection in this life. We will continue to struggle. But this uh, the fact that we are justified, knowing what Christ did on the cross, should lead us and motivate us to greater obedience and to repent of the sins that we struggle with. Any comments or questions? Yes, Taylor. I think practically, the point about David, we can love, what does he do? Create within mm. a new, uh, clean heart. Yep. Um, so we can, of course, ask the Lord to do that. And But even in, the, even in that sin that we may find ourselves in, we're no less justified. Right. God's, God doesn't love us any less. Yep. No, the reason we are being uh, chastened is because God loves us. Right. Uh, and then just the last point, First John, 
he's writing us so we don't sin. So, but if you do sin, we have an advocate, Christ. And he yep. intercedes for his children on our behalf. So uh, <clears throat> even in those times, there's a lot um, to be hopeful and joyous about. So long as we confess our sin and repent. Amen. Yeah, and that's why Pastor Steve, every Sunday we have our prayer confession, right? We come before the Lord, we confess our sins, we are cleansed, especially coming to the Lord's table. We shouldn't have sin that we're holding on to. Um, but we have that advocate that we can come back to the gospel, come back to Christ and remember what he did for us and turn from our sins. And he will forgive us. First John also says that as well. If we confess our sins, he, the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, and that's not done arbitrarily. That's done on the basis of what Christ did. His work is the basis for our forgiveness. Question 10. So in your own words, explain how the Bible supports the teaching of uh, paragraph 6, that justification is one and the same in the Old and New Testaments. Paragraph 6 talks about this um, with regards to justification, that the Old Testament saints are uh, saved or were saved in the same way that we were. Paragraph 6 states, the justification of believers under the Old Testament was in all these respects one and the same with the justification of believers under the New Testament. So there, there was no special um, way of salvation for the people of Israel, the Old Testament church. People under the Old Covenant were saved in the same way that we were, even though there were different covenants. And this is why covenant theology is important, one of the reasons. Um just because they were under the old covenant does not mean that that covenant had anything to do with their salvation necessarily. There was no covenant of grace in any of the covenants prior to the new covenant under Christ. But they believed in the promises that were coming uh, in that was to come in Christ. Right. This is what we see uh, with Abraham. Um, Abraham is the prime example that Paul gives. But if we look even earlier on in our confession in the chapter that talks about the person of Christ, it uh, discusses this as well. Although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ till after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy and benefit thereof were communicated to the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world and by in and by those promises, types and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed which would bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world being the same yesterday, today, and forever. And chapter 26 on the church also talks about this as well, jumping ahead a little bit. The Catholic or universal church with respect to the internal work of the spirit and truth of grace may be called visible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered unto one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, and the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So where do we get this from Scripture? This idea that, you know, the, the Old Testament saints were justified. Look at Romans chapter 4. So Paul, you know, he's laid out what justification is in chapter 3. And then he, lest uh, you think that Paul was just, you know, his readers were just thinking that he was making this up or imposing something on the text, he goes back to the scriptures. He doesn't um, He doesn't just say, well, you know, this is what I say on the authority of God. He says, no, this is from the Old Testament. This is grounded in God's word um, itself. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. What shall we say? Uh, what then shall we say? That Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. 
but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. And blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So Paul goes all the way back to the book of Genesis to prove his point, right? He's quoting from Genesis 15. Genesis 15, verses 4 through 6. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So we see this all the way back in the Old Testament. The father of Israel, Abraham. He was believing God's promise about what was to come, right? Your descendants shall be like this. And we know that was through Christ, through his death. These are the elect that he would bring unto himself. And by doing so, uh, by believing in this, Abraham was counted as righteous just as we were. So Paul wants it to be very clear that this is a teaching that he didn't make up. It's not something that was introduced into the early church. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament, to the beginning um, when God began working out his redemptive plan in Abraham. Yes, Pam. I was thinking, too, of um, Simeon and Anna, um, how they were looking forward to Christ. And they were looking forward to the Messiah. And mm. you know, they glorified God. Mm. Yeah, and, and even Jesus, uh, like on the road to Emmaus, pulling out, you know, the scriptures are talking about me. The scriptures are talking about me, that all of these teachings are pointing to Christ. Um, and the, the Old Testament is not disconnected from the new. It's all part of God's redemptive plan and bringing um, his people to salvation. Um, but what's interesting, too, is Paul even quotes David. He goes back to Psalm 32, 1 through 2. That means David was even talking about this doctrine. Um, so we see this doctrine brought out in the Old Testament. And Paul also goes on to talk about what true sonship of Abraham looks like. That this sonship is not in ethnic sonship, not through circumcision, not by being born an Israelite, but it's through faith. He would be the father of many nations, right? And this was done before he was circumcised. And this was, I think, really to dispel any Jewish um, thought that, you know, okay, Abraham was circumcised, so maybe that contributed to his salvation. I mean, look, look at his special standing before God. He was chosen of God. He was circumcised. He had the sign. Abraham was set. And no, this was done before he was circumcised. Why? So that he could be the father of all those who believed by faith. Jesus even discussed this with the Pharisees in John chapter 8, verses 37 through 42. He said, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak that I have what I have seen of my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. 
So what were those deeds that Abraham did? He believed. One of them was believing by faith in God, right? And Jesus is implying here that he believed in him. And that doesn't mean that Abraham necessarily knew who Jesus was and that he was God, or but he believed in the promise that was to come and the method that would bring um, make him the father of many nations. But Paul is saying here that faith, justification, is the unification for Jews and Gentiles. It's not... There's no more distinction. Circumcision was meant just for a particular time to distinguish the people of Israel. But faith ultimately is what makes you a true child of Abraham. I mean, that had to be um, devastating for uh, Jews at the time. You know, what, you're, you want me to hang out with these dirty Gentiles? Weren't, didn't you just say that we were not supposed to mingle with them? And now you're saying that because of Abraham's faith, they're going to be also counted as children of Abraham. You know, that um, that really turned the Jewish mindset upside down. And that, I think, is what Jesus is alluding to here. They thought, oh, yeah, we're children of Abraham. We're the Pharisees. Of course we are. What are you talking about? But they did not believe in Christ. They did not have the faith that Abraham did. And so they were of their father, the devil. Spiritually speaking is where it counts with regards to being true children of Abraham. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And they they probably knew this verse of uh, Genesis fifteen six. They believed God was counting him as righteousness, but they missed the point, didn't they? Completely. Yeah. Yep. Amen. We also see this in Galatians chapter 3. Paul lays this out as well in verses 6 through 9. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So again, unification is in Christ by faith. Right. That is the unification that we find. And this is why Paul could say, you know, there's no Jew, there's no Scythian, there's no Greek, but we're all one in Christ. We're all of the same spiritual family by faith and faith alone. Yep, that's exactly right. Yep, and then and we saw the problems that that caused in Galatia, the church in Galatia. There were the Judaizers, and they were still trying to keep those distinctions between Gentiles and Jews. And Paul's saying, "What do you were you justified by your circumcision? Were you justified by works? No, no. Faith is the unifying factor. Yep." Exactly right. And Jesus, again, in, in John 8, would even go on to say right before he declared himself as the great I am, as declaring his deity, said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So Abraham looked forward to the day that Christ would come and, and bring, many, uh, bring people from many nations unto himself. Yep, that's exactly right. So, you know, this doctrine of justification, as we talked about last week, is very important. 
It's crucial. We have to understand it. We have to grasp it. Um, or we will uh, find ourselves in a precarious spiritual situation. This goes to the heart of the gospel. If you deny justification but claim to believe in the death of Christ, you don't understand the gospel. So we, we have to understand this in order to have a right relationship with God. And when we're teaching this to others, if we're evangelizing the world, we have to be able to tell them what the gospel is. This is a core aspect of it. Um, so I hope this has been beneficial, um, and I pray that we would uh, grow our knowledge of the gospel through this. Are there any comments or questions before we close? Yes, Nancy. I just think of the time when the Old Testament people were living and how they're understanding how difficult it was. Mm. And today, so thankful that we have the whole Bible, the Old and New Testaments, mm. because we can see, we can understand. They didn't understand. It was being presented to them first and foremost. Amen. Yep. Anything else? Yeah, Andrew. Look forward to Abraham looking forward to Christ coming. Another great faith to that is Genesis 22 when uh, God asks Abraham to uh, sacrifice Isaac. He says to Isaac that God himself will provide a lamb. Mm. But actually, what they received was a ram. So he was still expecting the lamb to come. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, too. We also found that place available to mine. Yep. Also, um, the reason why the blood of Christ can cover those Old Testament saints and anyone else who came before the incarnation and, of course, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is because it was absolutely sure to happen. And we can find the covenant of redemption, um, but it's exactly like an advance on a paycheck. Yep. We know that it's coming, mm -hmm. so we can get that advance. Yep. That's exactly how that blood can be applied to Abraham and all those Old Testament saints, because Christ would absolutely come to redeem God's people. Yep, yeah, it was an advance on a paycheck that was to come. And then when Christ died, and he actually paid for their sins. Exactly. Yep, that's exactly right. Also, then, to come back to uh, what Andrew was saying, right then, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's uh, Abraham, around that time, sent Eliezer, one of his head servants, get a bride for his son so it's like father sends person whose name means oh his name has some allusion to Eliezer has some allusion to the spirit I cannot remember what it is but the, the name has some relationship to it so it's like the father sends the spirit to get a bride for the son so, mm. and then it's in connection with the sacrifice and it's just very interesting picture it's very yeah you can see these types and shadows of what's to come exactly yep spirit is my helper or something like that mm. Yep. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time studying your gospel. We pray that, Father, you would grow us who are in Christ, that we would learn from this. It would help us to repent of besetting sins or willful sin that we have in our lives. And I pray, Father, that it would be effectual to those who do not know you that are here this morning, that um, this promise of imputation and justification would be realize for those who do not know you, that they would believe and that they would repent. We pray that you would bless our worship today, Father, that you would bless Pastor Steve as he brings us the word, that we would be attentive and glorify you in our worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Dave.